This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Dove. As businesses try to navigate the broader macroeconomic problems caused by the war in Ukraine, such as rising energy prices, disrupted supply routes, inflation, currency fluctuations, financial markets volatility, they are also facing new regulations as a result of the international sanctions taken against Russia following its declaration of war on February 24, 2022. Indeed, several governments and international organizations, mainly led by the US and the European Union, massively expanded pre-existing sanctions on Russian individuals and businesses when the war started. The Russian government responded in kind with sanctions against many countries and international organizations. Today, we discuss the most recent set of international sanctions against Russia, what they mean for businesses, and how to practically navigate the challenges they raise for IP owners. Our guest today is Ethan Heinz, attorney and counsel at Dentons. Currently based in Prague, in Czech Republic, Ethan focuses on M&A and corporate work, sanctions, and compliance work in the European region. Ethan worked in the Dentons Moscow office for over 13 years and continues to assist international and Russian companies on compliance issues involving Russia and neighboring jurisdictions, in particular with respect to the sanctions program of the US, the EU, and other countries. He also advises from time to time on shareholder conflicts and commercial disputes and has participated in various arbitrations, litigations, and mediations. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Audrey. It's glad to be here. So international sanctions are generally defined as political and economic decisions that are part of diplomatic efforts by countries or regional organizations against states or organizations either to protect national security interests or to protect international law and defend against threats to international peace and security. Sanction decisions usually include the temporary imposition of economic, trade, diplomatic, cultural, or other restrictions. But since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, various packages of international sanctions have been taken against Russian persons. Looking at the different perspectives, what are the ones that, in your view, will have the biggest impact on the IP ecosystem in the long run? That's a good question and a difficult question because I think that the true answer is that we don't know the answer yet. The biggest impacts may yet to be seen in the form of sanctions that haven't been introduced. As you may know, since the severe escalation of the crisis in Ukraine in late February 2022, the European Union has adopted seven different sanctions packages. Uh, The United Kingdom has amended its regulations 13 times. The United States has introduced a number of new executive orders imposing new sanctions and designated many persons. And we're going to see this trend continue. Unfortunately, there's no realistic prospects, I think, in the near term for a a lasting resolution of the crisis in Ukraine. And what that means is that we're going to see a steady increase in additional sanctions. The sanctions that are in place already are, are extensive and wide ranging. But if you're familiar with U.S. sanctions, for example, against Cuba or Iran, 
there's still a ways to go. They could get worse. And so in terms of what the lasting impact will be, it may be measures that haven't yet been adopted. But in terms of sanctions that are already in place, uh, I would point to a few key things. Um, the first is that the U.S. and more recently the United Kingdom have imposed a prohibition on new investment um, by persons subject to their jurisdiction. In other words, U.S. persons and U.K. persons, respectively, new investment in Russia. Well, basically, you can, you can maintain your existing operations, but you can't form new joint ventures. You can't make new acquisitions and so forth. And so, you know, there's a lot of fertile and inventive minds in Russia and in more peaceful times, there was a lot of opportunities for fruitful cooperation, joint ventures and so forth in this area. It was an expanding market. Unfortunately, that's basically coming to an end. Now, all you can sort of do is hunker down and maintain your existing investments, but there's no prospects for future expansion. The EU has not yet matched this prohibition on new investment, but as mentioned, if things continue to get worse, um, they may yet do so. So that's that's the one major impact I'd say from the West, uh, among others. Um, the other one I would point out would be the Russian counter sanctions, which I think we'll probably discuss in greater mm -hmm. detail. But obviously, those Russian counter sanctions have seriously impacted uh, IP rights holders' protections under Russian law and in the Russian market. Now, let's have a closer look at the consequences on IP specifically of the international sanctions against Russia. Could you please give us an overview of the main measures taken by the US, by the UK, and the European Union uh, that have impact on IP rights and their owners? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's important to bear in mind that in adopting sanctions, uh, Western jurisdictions always try to strike a balance of doing surgical harm, for, for lack of a better term, to sanctions targets, uh, you know, the Russian government or major players in the Russian economy, while trying to minimize the harm to uh, companies and persons, uh, you know, in their own jurisdiction. So it's a difficult balance to strike and invariably in imposing costs on the other side, you're going to impose a certain uh, degree of costs on your own side. But nevertheless, you know, insofar as IP rights protection in Russia is for the benefit of the Western companies that have historically operated there or would intend to operate there, um, perhaps for that reason, it hasn't been singled out. So there haven't really been Western sanctions specifically targeting the IP sector per se as a discrete sector. Um, that being said, there are a number of other sanctions that have tangential or knock-on effects uh, that do impact IP rights holders. And so you can sort of put these in different categories. Um, one of those is that there's a number of major Russian companies that are subject to what are called asset freezes in the UK and the EU or called being designated as a, an SDN or being subject to blocking sanctions in the US. And that's the strictest form of sanctions. If you're, if you're subject to blocking or freezing sanctions, Westerners who are bound by those sanctions can't have anything to do with you. They can't have any transactions with you or make funds or economic resources available to you. And economic resources includes IP rights. So if, for example, you're a Western rights holder uh, and one of your clients has fallen on the sanctions list, uh, not just a sectoral sanctions list, there's different forms of lesser sanctions, but if, if they're subject to blocking or freezing sanctions, then you need to terminate your IP licenses. You can't collect any further um, payments from them, subject to some exceptions, or maybe a license exception, for example. Um, sometimes there's wind down licenses that sort of permit uh, termination of existing arrangements, but absent those sort of special permissions or licenses, 
you have to terminate all your dealings with your licensees in Russia. And so that's one major category in which sanctions have had an impact. There, another major category is that some sanctions, especially by the U.S., have targeted dealings with the Russian government. Now, this has been subject to uh, a license exception, but if that license exception is terminated, then it would become unlawful to make payments to uh, Rospatient, which is Russian IP registrar in Russia, which obviously would curtail your ability to protect your IP rights in Russia. Can and should companies continue to register or at least maintain their IP rights in Russia? So what's the current situation of the local IP office, to your knowledge? Rospatient, which is the, the IP registrar in Russia, is not under Russian sanctions um, per se. So there's no prohibition on dealing with it per se. And I don't think that it would be targeted simply because one of its functions is to protect rights holders, which includes uh, foreign companies. And so, again, insofar as Western jurisdictions seek to strike that balance between imposing harm on the Russian side and minimizing the harm on their own side, they have a certain incentive to avoid targeting Raspatient for that reason. Now, to the extent that Russian sanctions, counter sanctions rather, go so far that Raspatient is deemed to no longer be serving any role in protecting uh, Western rights holders, then perhaps that attitude would change and perhaps Raspatien would be sanctioned. But at the present time, it's not under sanctions. And so you're allowed to deal with it. Subject to that exception that I mentioned that uh, the U.S. Has, has prohibited all payments to the Russian central bank and the Russian state treasury and administrative and licensing fees payable to Raspatien are actually paid to the Russian treasury. So there's a general license. It's uh, 13A, which originally expired June 24th. It uh, has been extended to the 30th of September. Probably it will be extended again, but we don't know for sure. And if it ceased to be extended, if it were terminated, then it would become illegal to pay um, even routine registration, licensing, patent search type fees to Raspatient. But for the time being, there's no general prohibition on dealing with Raspatient. And what about enforcement? Is it worth monitoring and filing infringement claims given the current context? That's an interesting question. Uh, there was an initial wave of, of skepticism because there was a, a case that attracted a lot of attention, uh, the Peppa Pig case, where a Russian court in the regions basically held uh, that uh, there was a trademark infringement case by the Peppa Pig trademark owner. And uh, they sought basically token damages. I think it was 400 pounds or $400, not a large amount, um, but they also wanted an injunction. And the court of first instance denied their claim on the grounds that uh, the rights holder was from the UK, which is what under Russian law is called an unfriendly jurisdiction. That's the actual term used in Russian law. They have unfriendly and not unfriendly jurisdictions. And essentially any jurisdiction that's imposed sanctions is, falls under the unfriendly category. And so the court of first instance said that because claimant was from an unfriendly jurisdiction, it was, it was basically a bad faith or abusive process to file the claim in Russia. And that, that decision was handed down in March. Um, and the Russian justice system, for better or worse, does operate relatively quickly. And so there was already an appeal uh, that was filed and decided upon in late June. And the appellate court ruled that um, that was incorrect and overturned the decision of the court of first instance and said it was not per se abusive process for IP claimants from even an unfriendly jurisdiction to claim for patent infringement. And so there's some hope that there still may be grounds for enforcement in Russia. What's the 
cost of taking these regulations not seriously enough and not being fully compliant. In terms of, of Western sanctions, I think there's three potential costs. One is the potential legal liability, um, which could be potentially criminal um, in, in all jurisdictions, at least all major jurisdictions. Breach of sanctions is a potential criminal offense. It's true that that's not usually prosecuted as a criminal offense, absent you know, very serious indications of intent to deceive or dealing in you know, uh, uranium rods being shipped to Iran, that sort of very serious offense. Things short of that, where there's not deceptive practices, usually are resolved as a civil or regulatory or administrative matter with payment of a fine. But the fines can be quite significant. I mean, there have been cases of French banks that have paid um, up to billions of dollars in, in fines for violations of U.S. sanctions against Iran. We haven't seen that level yet with respect to sanctions against Russia, um, but the potential is certainly there. So the first cost or the first risk area is actual legal liability. Um, the second risk factor would be potential contractual liability because many companies are parties to facility agreements or insurance contracts or other agreements where they have a contractual obligation not to breach sanctions. And if they did that, then that could trigger uh, an event of default or other adverse consequences under their existing agreements. Uh, and the third cost is reputational. Obviously, in the West, I think it's fair to say that the crisis in, in Russia, I mean, in Ukraine, is perceived as largely an unjust war. And if you're seen to be dealing with the Russian government, that may entail adverse reputational costs or with major players in the Russian economy. And so you have to step carefully. You have to balance the commercial interests with uh, these sort of extra legal factors. But it's certainly mm -hmm. a risk that has to at least be carefully considered. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In response to sanctions taken against it following the invasion of Ukraine, Russia took its own stack of counter-sanctions to retaliate. Could you briefly present to us these counter-sanctions and the different ways they can impact the IP of companies that have interest in Russia. Sure. I should start with the qualification that I'm primarily a, a sanctions expert and not a, an IP expert, but uh, I can certainly run through the basic prohibitions. Decree number 299 of the Russian government allows for expropriation of IP rights for proportional compensation. It's sort of akin to a mandatory licensing scheme. So in other words, even if a Western rights holder in compliance with Western sanctions purports to terminate an existing license, which, it, for example, of a, someone subject to asset freeze or, or blocking sanctions, which it would be required to do, Russian law essentially allows the licensee to expropriate that IP rights. It's supposed to pay appropriate or proportional compensation, but uh, there's been indication that with respect to rights holders from unfriendly states, the correct amount of compensation may be zero. So that's obviously a severe measure. But nevertheless, if you're a rights holder, you're sort of damned if you do or damned if you don't. But because the cost of not complying with Western sanctions can be quite severe, as mentioned, um, you may ha have no choice but to accept this risk because there's really not much you can do about it. Decree number 322 
requires payments for IP rights to rights holders from unfriendly jurisdictions to be paid, uh, first of all, in rubles only, no matter what the contract states otherwise. And it must be paid to what's called a type O account at a Russian bank. And a type O account is a very limited form of bank account that can only be used for limited purposes, primarily to settle obligations to the Russian government, such as tax obligations, which would be relevant for uh, a rights owner that's been operating in Russia and may have liabilities, but wouldn't be very useful for, um, say, a foreign rights owner that doesn't have a permanent establishment in Russia and never had or never accrued um, material Russian governmental liabilities. Moreover, uh, these, the, the typo account could be used to purchase um, Russian government um, bonds or Russian debt, except for the fact that that itself is illegal under all Western sanctions. And so one of the permitted purposes of this typo account um, would itself be in breach of Western sanctions. I would also point to decree number 506, um, which allows parallel imports of a list of goods that's been published by the Russian Ministry of Industry and Trade. So this essentially authorizes gray market imports from other jurisdictions. You know, we see this from the Middle East or from Turkey or other um, non-Western jurisdictions where goods essentially get re-imported to Russia. Um, as you know, there's a Western sanctions include uh, prohibition on luxury goods, which is mm -hmm. pretty far ranging. Um, so we're seeing it in that industry. We're seeing it in other areas as well. Obviously, the, the list of goods that's subject to parallel import is, is pretty broad. That being said, there was an interesting interview with the head of the Ministry of Industry and Trade, and he predicted that parallel imports this year would reach $16 billion, which may seem like a lot, and it is in some measures, but that's against overall imports to Russia last year of around $380 billion. And so it's only a small fraction of historical uh, east-west trade flows. I would also point out that uh, what we're seeing on the Russian side is we're seeing, sorry, as Western companies leave the market, we're seeing issues like trademark squatting, where brands are leaving. And so Russians are swooping in to register either identical marks or trying to register identical marks or registering very similar names. So far, uh, to my knowledge, none of the identical marks have been registered. They're under consideration, but some of the similar or closely similar names may be getting more leeway and less scrutiny from Rasputin than they otherwise would have gotten. Ethan, looking ahead, uh, with no end in sight for the war between Russia and Ukraine, how do you think companies will adjust to this new landscape? And will short-term work around end up becoming new procurement or compliance policies? It's a good question, and it's a hard question because, as we discussed, the, the landscape is shifting so rapidly, and mm -hmm. I think that makes uh, long-term planning very difficult. I think everyone's still hoping that there will be a lasting and peaceful resolution to this conflict, but as it drags on now into its sixth month, people are having to adjust to the fact that there's not going to be a quick and easy solution like we might have hoped. So right now, I think most people are sort of in, in hunkering down mode. Um, it's, we're not seeing a lot of, obviously, new investment in Russia, which is now illegal in any case under U.S. and, and U.K. sanctions. Um, at the same time, people are trying to, trying to protect their existing interests in the hope of, of either expanding their operations or reentering the, the Russian market once uh, a lasting peaceful solution is found to the crisis. So I think right now people are interested in um, avoiding excess exposure or undue exposure to uh, legal risks from the Western sanctions, trying to avoid 
squatters or copycats in Russia sort of eroding the quality of their brand, trying to avoid or curtail gray markets, which may entail, for example, cracking down on distributors in countries like Turkey or the Middle East or other countries that are still maintaining more or less normal trade flows with Russia. Mm-hmm. I don't know that uh, any of these stopgap measures are going to become entrenched solutions, but I do think that um, as time goes on and people adjust to this new reality, they'll have they'll be gaining useful experiences to what works and what doesn't work. But right now it, it may be too early to make firm recommendations. But one thing is sure, you have to keep a, a close eye on the shifting legal landscape just because sanctions are changing so quickly. Now I have a few rapid fire questions for you, Ethan. The first one is the most unexpected way you have seen compliance issues come up over the last six months. I would just say expect the unexpected because we've seen transactions, for example, that have been about to sign, the counterparty is not sanctioned, the transaction is legal, and then someone gets sanctioned or there's a new package that's introduced. Sometimes um, these introduced, I mean, the EU has published sanctions regulations literally at like 11 p.m. on a Friday night. So sometimes these measures come out of uh, nowhere. Usually the EU, um, because the council has to discuss it in advance, there's an indication um, of what's coming at least a few days in advance, although we don't always know the exact contours. But UK and and US sanctions especially um, can sort of blindside you. And so I can't point to any single one thing that's unexpected other than the fact that you know it feels like the ground is constantly shifting and that makes it very important to the extent that um, you know listeners are still operating in Russia or planning to, to enter the new arrangements in Russia it makes it very important to try to ensure that they have appropriate contingency clauses in place that will allow them to walk away um, from a transaction with without liability in the event that they're required to do so or even in the event that they think it's prudent to do so Because, for example, you know, U.S. sanctions aren't binding on European companies or Canadian companies or U.K. companies, for example. But the U- the U.S. does have this concept of secondary sanctions, where they may they may impose sanctions on you if you're doing things that the U.S. doesn't think is appropriate. So, ideally, your contract would allow you to walk away if the U.S. imposes sanctions, even if you're not a U.S. person um, required to comply with that. If you think, of course, that that's in your best commercial interest. The last book you read and that you would recommend. Well, it's, it's the summer uh, season, so I can't say it's high literature, but I had a, a good thriller was The Eighth Detective by Alex Pavese, which is a sort of made a detective novel. It's got murder mysteries within murder mysteries. Um, but for something more serious that falls into the category of, of nonfiction, but it, it still reads like a thriller, I would say Kleptopia uh, by Tom Burgess, which has got its fair share of, of Russian actors in there, but not only. And it, it basically talks about um, the flow of dirty money through the international financial system. Thank you so much, Ethan. Thank you, Audrey. My guest today was Ethan Heinz, attorney and counsel at the law firm Dentons. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.